This Sunday we're talking about some of the theological, the, the ideas behind it, simply understanding what the, what the, the uh, fourth commandment is all about. And then next Sunday we're going to spend some time actually just really applying it and saying, what does this actually look like in our lives? Because this, this can be an incredibly influential, incredibly formative uh, commandment in our lives, a very practical one. We live in a straight-A's survival world. We live in a straight-A's survival world, a world that's all about striving, a world that's all about succeeding, it's about winning. Three years ago, a sophomore at Notre Dame wrote the following. She said, because we view humanity as corrupt and selfish, the only person we can rely upon is ourself. The only way we can avoid failure the only way we can avoid being let down, the only way we can avoid ultimately succumbing to the chaotic world around us is to have the means, the financial security, to rely only upon ourselves. Right? And how do we, how do we go about earning more? How does a Notre Dame student go about earning more? by learning more. Talked to one teenage, uh, this is a wild teenage teenager, I don't know, three or four years ago probably, and she said that uh, in her room, her parents put a sign right above her desk that says, learn more to earn more. Wow. Whew. I mean, what parent doesn't want their child to get straight A's? We live in a straight A's survival world that's all about striving. I once uh, had an, in my, one of my small groups, this is, I don't know, four or five years ago, there was a guy who, he was of Chinese descent but worked in Japan, and he worked at a Bank of America office, a Bank of America office there in Japan. I think it was, I'm not sure where, where, where in Japan it was. But in that particular bank where he worked, employees were kept late into the evening. Why? simply so that when the boss came down into their department, their supervisor could show their boss that they were still at work. Their work was done, they could have gone home, but he had them stay late because he wanted his boss, to, not, not, not this person himself, but his supervisor, wanted his boss to see that everyone was still there working hard. We live in a straight A's world that's all about striving once had a fellow brother of mine who's in Cambridge, England. He worked, was working 80 to 90 hour weeks at a Silicon sort of IT startup. And he, he was, why did he, why was he working 80 to 90 hours? Because he was trying to help his startup keep the promises that his supervisors had foolishly made to their investors. When he went to them and said, hey, do you mind if I go to church ever so often? They looked at him and said, are you kidding me? Don't you care about this startup? Don't you care about this company? You're being lazy. You're lazy. There's a phenomenal article in the New York Times about, about 15 years ago. It's written by a woman named Judith Shulevitz. And the title of the article is called Bring Back the Sabbath. 
And she says this at one point. She says, I won't weary you with cautionary tales about our work-addicted culture. I'm sorry, about what our work-addicted culture can do to you psychologically and physiologically. Because for one thing, it's completely within your power, reader, to hold it at bay. And for another, you simply don't want to anyway. Ours is a society that pegs status to overachievement. We can't help but admire workaholics. See, we are a straight-A's survival world that's all about striving, even when it means oppressing our employees, even when it means keeping them at work. And when we're not striving, we're all about sitting back. We're not striving, we're just sitting back. John Piper has probably one of the most famous sermons that John Piper uh, ever preached, a pastor named John Piper. Uh, he preached a sermon uh, about seashells. We talked about retirees. And he says, what is the greater, stra- what the greater tragedy? And he spoke of two elderly ladies serving in a, in a majority world country who in their 80s are serving Jesus tirely through, as, you know, through in various capacities, medical and spiritual, offering medical and spiritual aid to various people. And at one point, these, these elderly persons are driving in a car together, these elderly women, and I think the car, like the, the brakes went out and the car went over a cliff and they died. And Piper asks, is that a, is that a tragedy? And then he contrasts it with a Reader's Digest story about a couple who were from the Northeast and they retired early, you know, in their early 50s so that they could move down to Florida so that they could buy their boat, so they could walk on the seashore and, have, and, and amass this incredible seashell collection. That was it, a boat, seashells. Piper says, that is a tragedy. That's a tragedy. See, we're not striving. We're all about sitting back and just checking out. I'll never forget going going to a funeral of a man who the entire time, the entire funeral, as people got up, they did one thing and one thing only, praise him for his golf swing. What an incredible golfer. All these golf stories, where we were, drunk, having a great time in the golf course. Golf story after golf story. His life was about golf. See, we're not striving, we're just sitting back. In a straight-A survival, it's a a straight-A survival world. And either we're striving, we're sitting back. And in that kind of world, the idea of the Sabbath seems stupid. It does, it just seems stupid. The whole idea of the fourth commandment seems utterly just ridiculous. Going back to Judith Shulovitz in the New York Times article, she says, the Sabbath, the one day in seven dedicated to rest by divine command has become the holiday that Americans are most likely never to take. And this is hardly a new view. In fact, to the first century Stoic philosopher Seneca, the Sabbath was absurd. He observed the backward Jews in Rome And he talked about how they, quote, waste almost a seventh of their life in inactivity, unquote. Isn't isn't the Sabbath stupid? It's a waste of our time. What's even worse is the Old Testament. You know what the penalty for the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, you know what the penalty is for breaking the Sabbath? Death. It's a capital offense. And you think, why at this point? You're like, how stupid could the commandments be? How stupid could the Old Testament be? I mean, isn't the Sabbath a lot like yoga? All right? Sarah often goes to yoga classes, and I tease her. In this past, I would tease her about, like, so you, you walk past the yoga class, and what's happening? 
Where's the activity? Where's the action? There's nothing happening. Right? Right? Wrong. Totally wrong. Right? Those of you who have actually participated in yoga know how incredibly beneficial it can be. But a guy like me walks by and says, why aren't they running? Where are the weights? Why isn't there action? Why isn't there activity? Clearly nothing's happening. And if you ask me, but some of my, some of my good friends that I have, I mean, they, they do yoga all the time for all kinds of incredibly good health reasons. Guys I know who have like skeletal issues or um, various uh, bone problems and such, they do yoga and it's immensely helpful. And what if the fourth commandment is to living life what yoga is to health? Because so often it's saying, stop, do nothing for a day. Nothing's happening. But what if there's a lot happening when we think, when we think that, that nothing's happening? See, the fourth commandment challenges us how do we, how to, it challenges us to think, it challenges how we think about our world, about ourselves, and about others. And it calls us to follow in the way of Jesus. If you would, turn to page 832 in your pew Bible. This is Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 31, in fact, I'm going to turn there myself if I can find a pew Bible here. Here we go. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 and 32. So I'm getting on page 832 if you want to follow along in the pew Bible. Jesus, this, the fourth commandment is going to lead us this, this morning straight to Jesus. In 8.32, Jesus is uh, preaching in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And he says this. This is so, listen to these words. He's talking about worry. He's talking about anxiety. He's talking about um, you know, you know, living in fear of the future. And in chapter 6 and verse 31, again on page 8.32, he says this. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these, other, and all these things, all these other things will be given to you as well. Isn't that an astonishing promise? So Jesus is calling, Jesus invites us to consider this morning at least one question, and it's this. What are you running after? What are you running after? All your time, your energy, your mental thought, what are you running after? For the pagans run after all these things. What shall I eat? What shall I drink? What shall I wear? And your heavenly Father, he knows, listen to this, he knows that you need them. And he calls us verse 33, but seek first his kingdom. Seek first his dominion. Seek first the fact that he is sovereign, that he is king over all. Seek first his kingdom in such a way that you align all that you are with his purposes, with his will, with his agenda. Jesus invites us to live in a world where, the, where his own Father knows what we need before we ask him. 
He invites us to live in a world where his father is sovereign over all. He invites us to live in a world that follows him, where, where Jesus says these words, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. See, Jesus is this incredible figure because as we learn to follow him, we realize, we realize what true influence, what true impact in the world looks like. Let me read to you. This is from, um, this is from a, a man named Marcus Bachmuel, who was a professor of early, of early Christianity at Oxford University. He is one of the leading scholars uh, of, of, of study on, on uh, the history of the, the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And he, he writes this, listen to this. He says, 2,000 years have come and gone, but still his remains the unfinished story that refuses to go away. Jesus of Nazareth, a Jew from rural first century Galilee, is without doubt the most famous and the most influential human being who ever walked the face of the earth. His influence may at present be declining in a few countries of Western Europe and parts of North America, as has, come, as has from time to time transpired elsewhere. But the global fact remains that the adherents of Jesus are more widespread and more numerous and make up a greater part of the world's population than at any, other, than at any time in history. Two billion people identify themselves as Christians. Well over a billion Muslim, Muslims revere Jesus as a prophet of God. Unnumbered others know and respect his memory as a wise and holy man. The followers of Jesus live in every country of the globe. They read and speak of him in a thousand tongues. For them, the world's creation and destiny hold together in him, the holy human and visible icon of the holy, transcendent, and invisible God. He, that is Jesus, animates their cultures, their creeds, and their aspirations. For many non-believers too, indeed, to the majority of the earth's population, Jesus is a household name whose brand recognition still far outstrips that of McDonald's, Microsoft, or MTV. And then he says this, how ironic then that during his lifetime, Jesus was neither exceptionally famous nor particularly influential on the lives and events in the society in which he lived. In other words, during Jesus' day, he was a nobody. The most influential person in the world, in human history, was a nobody in his day. Why? Because the path that he walked was so contrary. A path of Sabbath-keeping, a path of seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. See, Jesus' grand strategy you see it in Mark 3, we won't turn there, was this. This is that Jesus, Jesus chose 12 that they, that they might be with him. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, he chose 12 simply that they might be with him. Jesus literally poured himself into 12 men. That was his grand strategy to change the world, and it worked. It just didn't happen in his lifetime. Jesus wasn't striving he wasn't sitting here always trying to do more. He didn't strive nor did he sit back. He sought first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. I so appreciated Natalie sharing this morning. She talked about God's call on her life and the ways in which God was providing. And I just want to affirm that so much. As you seek God's call on your life, as you seek his kingdom first, 
He will add all these other things to you. And that's what the fourth commandment calls us to do. It's so beautiful. And I just want to add my testimony to, to Natalie's. As, as Sarah and I have pursued God's call on our life in ways that are often so painful, so sacrificial, so just seemingly insane, he has provided so richly, so amazingly. I just can't tell you story after story of God's provision in our life. Let me ask you, why do we strive? Why all the striving? Why, why this straight A's world? Why do, we, why do we strive? It's for two reasons, at least two reasons. Fear of hunger and fear of harm. Fear of hunger. See, we're, at the end of the day, we're needy creatures. We're limited. We, we, need, we, need, we have needs. And we fear being hungry, not just hungry for food, but hungry for meaning. Hungry for significance. Hungry for impact. That just speaks right to my heart. I'm so hungry for significance. One of the reasons I went in the military, in the military we have this saying, we do more before breakfast than most people do all day. I love that saying. I get up early, get it all done, hungering for significance, hungering for status. We fear, we have a deep fear of hunger as we strive. Not only a fear of hunger, but a fear of harm. We realize that we are vulnerable, that we are weak, that there are powers out there that are way bigger than we are. And this is exactly what the fourth commandment is all about. Remember, recall the Notre Dame student. What did she say? She said, look, we live in a world of people who are corrupt, they are selfish, and there's only one person that you can rely on. It's yourself. The question is, is she right? Is anyone looking out for us? Do I need to be the star player in my life? The straight-A student. So I can gain enough resources, financially especially, to be self-reliant. So there's no fear of hunger. There's no fear of harm. How much money do I need to get? How much, how much resources do I need to acquire to gain so that I can, I can stop the striving, so I can not be fearful anymore? Kids, listen to me. I'm going to explain the fourth commandment to you this morning very, very simply. And after church, I want you to ask your parents to explain the fourth commandment to you. And if, they, if they get it, if they don't get it, let me know. That means they weren't listening. Okay. So you ready? This is, I'm just, this kids, you can understand the fourth commandment very simply. I want you to imagine that you are on a team. I don't know, it's a, it's a, 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 some athletic team, a sports team of like, maybe it's basketball or football or baseball, and this team always wins. And the reason they win is that they have a star player. But this is really important. You're not the star player. You're on it and you're good, but you're not the star player. Let's say that you're at basketball. That's what I played in, in, in junior high, high school. And so you're, you're on this team, and here's the idea. You have the star player, and this star player is the one who will always enable you to win. And so your coach comes to you during practices and says this. Look it, I want you to play because you're good. But here's the thing. We have the star player, and we know we're going to win. And so that frees you to go out there and play for six minutes and then 
come back in for a rest for the seventh minute. And then go back in for six minutes and then take a rest for seventh. And the thing is, if you rest for that seventh, you'll actually play better for the other six. Because as a coach, I know you. I know what your weaknesses are. I know, we know when you need rest and when you, how much work you can do. I, I, I know you inside and out. I've watched you play. And so you're going to flourish. And when you're in the six minutes, you don't have to worry the whole time if we're going to win. Why? Because we've got a star player. And when you're resting, when you're out in the seventh minute and you're just sitting in there, you don't have to be like, oh, I need to get back in. I need to get back in. Why? Because you've got a star player. See, the fourth commandment calls us to enter into a game of life where there's a, a, to be on the right team, a team that has a star player that enables us to play with all our, play our hearts out for six minutes, to play the game that we love, the position that we've been called to, small forward, center, guard, whatever it is, and to play it with all our hearts. And then the six minutes, the ref blows the, the whistle. You walk off the court, you grab your water while you sit down and you watch. And you just and you soak it in. You see that? There's no striving. There's no striving. There's no worry. There's no fear. You're able to enjoy the game, whether you're playing it or whether you're just simply watching it. Both as a participant, but also as one who's simply a spectator sitting on the bench. Do you see how the fourth commandment works? The fourth commandment assumes that there is a star player, that there is one who is actually in control, who will win, who is sovereign, who is in control, who is stronger than the enemies, who's stronger, who's able to, is so strong that they can provide to meet our hunger, who's so strong that they can protect us from harm, and then enables us to serve and to stop instead of resting. Let me just walk through this fourth command. It won't take long at all. It's very simple, especially given that, that very simple um, metaphor. Got that, kids? You got that? That's a very important idea. It's the idea that you can go in and play for six. You can rest for a seventh because you've got a star player. See, the fourth commandment does this. Basically, the fourth commandment says this. Because God is sovereign, we can serve and stop. We can serve, then stop. Because God is sovereign. And he's sovereign in several ways. First, he's sovereign to support us. So most of you, if you, you, you were actually been reading, uh, Donna read from Deuteronomy. I want to just take us really quickly to Exodus chapter 20. That's the first time that the Ten Commandments are given. Look on page 64 of, of, of your Bible. 64 of your Bible. So this is Exodus chapter 20. This is the first time the Ten Commandments are given. Again, page 64. You'll notice there on verses 8 through 11, that's the fourth commandment. Now look at it. It says, verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. There's the six, the six minutes. The six days that you're to go all out serving, seeking the kingdom, seeking the Lord and your calling that he's given you, enjoying it, you know, working in a way that is productive and fruitful. And then he says in verse 9, six days you labor and do your work, verse 10, sorry, verse 10, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It's a day of ceasing, a day that we stop. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, and he lists, as this long list that we'll come back to, and look at verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the, and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Now how is that 
a, a reason, a rationale for us to, to follow the Sabbath. It's very simple. That God is sovereign, and he made the world in such a way that to, to provide for us. He's sovereign to provide. He said God made everything he needs to make, and then he stopped. And in the ancient world, for a king to cease, for a king to rest, when do kings rest? When do they stop and just relax? When their kingdom is free from foes. When, they're, when they've provided protection for their people. See, God's resting on the seventh day is to say that all the forces of darkness, the forces of, 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 of anything that is anti-life have been subdued, and God can now rest because he is provided and he's protected for his, his, his beloved son, his beloved children, Adam and Eve, for his people. So Genesis 1 is this wonderful story of a God who's so strong and so sharing that God's people can imitate him by simply working six days and then resting. Working six days and resting. So again, in this picture of creation, in this rationale of, of verse 11, we see this very simple idea that God is sovereign, and he's sovereign to support us, sovereign to share with us, sovereign to secure us and keep us safe. Think of it this way. How many of you parents, right, the first time you had a child, very early on in the pregnancy, you, have a, you pick out which room, you paint the room, you get it all ready to go for this amazing nursery, and you're, you're done, and, and then, pretty, then pretty soon you're done, and it's all ready to go. And you stop working on the nursery. Why? Because it's done. It's all prepared, and you rest, and you wait till the arrival of the little one. Genesis 1 portrays God like this parent preparing the nursery for the new arrival. He's sovereign to support, sovereign to secure us, sovereign to, to, to watch over us. The, the second, so that's, that's the fourth, that's the rationale given in the, in the first uh, giving of the Ten Commandments. Now turn back to Deuteronomy. Turn back there to Deuteronomy. It's, that's back on page 154. So now we, we, can serve, we can serve and we can stop first because God is sovereign in creation. But he's not just sovereign in creation. He's sovereign in, in salvation. In salvation. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5. Again, look at verse 12. The same language. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh, is a day, the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. And then verse 15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out, out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. See, this beautiful idea is not only are we to observe the Sabbath, not only can we stop striving and start serving six days and then ceasing and stopping on the seventh because of his provision in creation, but because of his provision in salvation. He's not only a God who shares, a God who supports, he's a God who saves us. He saves us out of slavery. He saves us out of the slavery of our sin. See, Deuteronomy is appealing to the Exodus story. We find there the 10th and final plague that God brings his people out of Egypt. How? Through a Passover lamb. A lamb that was slain, a lamb that, that, that took upon itself the wrath 
of the death angel. The wrath that all of Egypt deserved, including the Israelites themselves, because they participated in in this machine that was created by the Pharaoh and by the Egyptian culture, a machine of striving, a machine that said, you're not safe until until you are always working, working, working. A machine that rejected God's goodness, God's care, God's provision. See, we can, we can, in, a, in this, this world of striving, in this straight A's, wor- this straight A's world, we can stop. We can serve six days and then stop for a seventh. And who can serve and stop? This is so foundational to the fourth commandment. Do you see this? Look at this long litany of words. Look in chapter 5. Look in verse, uh, verse 14. The seventh day is a day of Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest just as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Right? You know what it's like to be a slave. You know what it's like, what it's like to be lo- on the low end of the totem pole. You know what it's like to be this, this employee who's just worked endlessly. And remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an, extra, and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath this day. The prime minister of Britain from 1957 to 1963 was named as Harold Macmillan. And he described the Sabbath. Are you ready for this? He described the Sabbath as the first and greatest worker protection act in history. There is nothing like it in the ancient world. It is not simply this, this fourth commandment isn't simply this private sort of, oh, I'm going to sit back and rest. The fourth commandment, to obey the fourth commandment, is to say as parents, are my children resting? from homework, from the daily extracurricular activities of sports and all the things that just frenetically go on and on and on and band and you name it, all of these things. Are my children resting? As an employer, as a supervisor, are those underneath me, am I freeing them to rest, to get the time they need to, to step, to stand down and simply to recover, to sit back for a while and to rest? The fourth commandment says that because God is sovereign, sovereign to support us, sovereign to save us, we, we, that is we all, every single one of us, all of us together, can serve six days, seeking his kingdom first, and then ceasing, stopping, all together. Returning briefly to the New York Times article, Shulevitz writes this, We could let the world wind us up and set us to marching like mechanical dolls that go, that go and go until they fall over. Why? Because they don't have a mechanism that allows them to pause. But that is, we could, she says, we could let the world do that to us, but that would make us less than human. See, the fourth commandment is there to protect our humanity. 
to force us to stop and realize, to stop and realize that we are not producers. We're not just, just simply there to produce widgets, to produce more and more and more, and that's what God wants from us. God is not interested in how much we can produce. He doesn't care. Most of you know the story from Mark chapter 12, where Jesus, this was a story that meant the most to me as I was going through my, my graduate studies, just working ceaselessly every single day. And the, the beautiful story of Jesus, they're in their, they're in their temple courts, and, and Jesus' disciples just hey, look at all these people coming from all over the place, just throwing these massive money bags into the treasury. Uh, all the, isn't it amazing? Look at how much that guy, look how much that guy had. Look at that big deal over there. Look at that big influence over here. See how much they're giving. And Jesus points them, what? To a widow, a poor widow, who puts in these two little pennies all that she has. And by divine logic, by the economy, by the, the economy of the kingdom, Jesus said, do you see that? She has put in more than everyone else. Brothers and sisters, the fourth commandment calls us to give ourselves, to give ourselves first, to seek his kingdom, to know that he is sovereign, to know that indeed because he's sovereign, he will support us. He knows what we need before we ask him. And so so we are freed to serve, to seek his kingdom, to do so six days in the week. And then to cease, to relax, to relax, to to stand down, to unwind on that seventh. But not only to make sure that we do that for ourselves, to do it for the powerless, to do it for those who have no voice, to do it for the people underneath us. You know, um, when it comes to abortion, the whole issue just of the, just the, 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 the voicelessness of those who are weak, the Sabbath is a day that calls us to remember our humanity. Humanity of the elderly who can't produce anymore. The elderly of the little ones who can't produce, who can't yet produce. To remember that we are far more than what we can make. We're far more than what we, what we can earn. We're far more than what we can achieve that we are first and foremost children of God who loves us. I'll never forget, let me, I'll close with this. I'll never forget, like, so our age, I think our twins are about three years old, and I said something to Sarah. I said, you know, I don't know what the girls have done, but they've, they've, they've sure done something really smart because they don't do anything around this house, and yet we love them so incredibly much, Right? I mean, you don't, you don't get into parenting to, be, to sort of streamline your life, right? to be high-speed, low-drag. It's just so efficient. Parenting is inherently inefficient in so many ways. And yet God brings these little ones into our life, just shocks us by the sense of delight, the sense of joy, the sense of, I would do anything for this little one. And that is the tiniest, tiniest little glimpse into the love that your heavenly Father, who knows what you need before you ask him, that's the tiniest glimpse into his love for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? For all of your doubt, for all of your despair, for all of your disobedience, for all of the ways that you strive, 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 the ways that you try to, you hunger and hunger and hunger for what will not lastingly satisfy you. The ways that you're, we're so afraid of all the harm in our lives that he says, look, child, 
I am your father. And I'm not letting you go. It was my idea to bring you into this family in the first place. I am in no way ashamed to shed the blood of my son for you. Come on in. Come on into the family. Rest. Yes, serve me. But know that there's a superstar. There's a star on the team. And he has done what cannot be undone. It is there on the cross that Jesus said what? It is finished. All of the, all the religions in the world say do, do, do. Christianity says done. It's done. Are you entering into that rest? Are you a child of rest? So the next week, we're going to spend the entire time simply talking very practically. What does it look like, nuts and bolts, to actually do this thing called the Sabbath? Let me conclude with this question. Why do the Christians celebrate the Sabbath on the first day? Do you know that? You think about that. The seventh day, the fourth commandment says, on the seventh day. Why do Christians celebrate on the first day? Because when Jesus said, it is finished, he died. And then there was the next day, the day of Sabbath. And then on the eighth day, he rose from the dead. And, the, and the, of course, in, in, in the way of Jewish way of time, seven is the number of completion. And eight is the number of new creation, of new beginning, of a new start. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was the beginning of a brand new creation. And as Christians, we celebrate that. We say it is finished, and now we are on day eight, the day of creation, the day of resurrection. And indeed, all shall be well. Let me give the final word here to Julian of Norwich, 14th century, a woman of God. She wrestled with the dominating darkness of sin and evil in her own life and all around her. And she asked, why? Why, God? Why would you allow so much darkness? Why so much disease? And so there was a series of revelations that Jesus gave to her. And he said to her in one of those revelations, he said, in words of perfect tenderness and comfort, he said these words that I think you should just plaster on your bathroom mirror every morning. It is indeed true that sin is the cause of all pain. But all shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. Isn't that beautiful? Do you believe that? That He, our God, is sovereign. That He is a great sharer that he is our savior, and that indeed one day all things and all manner of things shall be well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how beautiful, how amazing that you call us to live just as your children. How unthinkable that you treasure us, not for what we can produce, not for all of our obedience, not for the fact that we get it right, but because you have shed the blood of your son for us that you have made us for yourself, that you want a relationship with us. Oh, Father, I pray that we would enter into the fourth commandment, that we would enter into its rest, that we would cease from our striving. Father, I pray for each and every person here this morning. I pray that they would leave asking the question, what does it look like for me to seek your kingdom first? What does it look like to have a calling on my life, 
on my story, on my gifts, on my abilities, and my weaknesses, all that I am. Father, I pray that each and every person here would know the joy of seeking your kingdom first, knowing that indeed that you will add all of these other things to it. Father, we thank you that Jesus indeed is our provider, that he indeed is our sure and steady anchor. In the midst of a storm that rages all around us, Father, we think of just the, the overwhelming waves of unbelief, the waves of, of doubt, the waves of despair, just the, the overwhelming flood of temptation that overwhelms us, Lord, and we know that Christ, Christ indeed will not let us go, but only deeper will go the anchor that will keep us secure, secure from all harm. Father, show us the way, the way of life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.